Hi, everyone. This is Dave Musgrave here with my friend Charles, also known as Loss, uh, for the first episode of the Pretending to Fight podcast. Charles, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? I'm fantastic. Very excited to be getting back in the podcasting game. I've done a couple episodes as a guest in the past couple of years and have talked about trying to get back in the game. And uh, thankfully, uh, you're willing to work along with me to at least do this episode. and We'll see where things go. Yeah, you know, um, I haven't done one in quite a few years myself. I, I was thinking about it, and I guess the first podcast I did, you were it, you were on it. It was with you and Dylan when you did Wrestling Culture. Yes, it was. Um, it was about the 1996 yearbook. It was in, indeed, yes. And so I guess that's been probably seven or eight years at this point, which is crazy to think that's about. That's actually a good 10 years. That's oh, Okay, so I <laughs> underestimated Wow. Wow. It's crazy. It's been that long, but yeah, so it's kind of full circle because my first podcast was also with you. Makes sense. The first one I've done in a long time and also with you. So there you go. Yeah. And that's, that was actually the first time we'd ever spoken, uh, been in contact at all. Like I think we knew each other's names from message boards, but had never even shared a message. Right. So yeah, here we yeah, are friends true. 10 years later. So yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. It's great to have you. So for the first episode tonight, folks, we were thinking of talking about uh, the 1990s. Uh, one of the reasons that I picked this topic, and the 1990s specifically and how they've influenced today. One of the reasons I picked this topic is uh, that Charles did a great uh, project a number of years back. Uh, as you know, us wrestling nerds like to do our projects. And he did one about the uh, top 500 matches of the 1990s. And it's very extensive. Uh, doing a top 100 list of anything is very extensive, much less the top 500, and uh, showed a lot of dedication. And I learned a lot from it, and I think it really helps to show, kind of look back at how influential the 90s were and what, what their impact is on today. So do you want to talk about what that project was like for you? Yeah, so, the, wow, that was... Um, it. It really, I, okay, so it came, it started in 2010, and I think there were a couple of years where everyone was just, I mean, after, um, you know, the Benoit stuff, like, there's a couple of year period where I think those of us who were, like, really, really into pro wrestling, a lot of us really started questioning that a little bit. I, I don't know that it was the case with everyone, but it just seemed like, I don't know, it became almost this really dark thing to be a fan of wrestling because you started just wondering why am I investing in all this stuff? It's horrible. And you could really only see like the, the downside of everything. And one thing that I had always wanted to do, because when I first came online, the very first thing I saw, and I don't know if you remember this, but like I first came online in probably the late nineties. So this would have been, I think 97. And <laughs> do you remember John McAdams website? Uh, not really, other than when I saw, so I think in your, your, uh, in some of your project work, you've mentioned it. So he had this incredible tape list, like nothing I've ever seen in my life that just blew me away when I saw it. Like, I was like, this match happened, this match happened. And it was really cool because the way his site was set up, he had, um, liner notes next to some of the matches with just little comments or did you know this or did you know that or whatever 
And occasionally, like I'd see the star rating, which was the first time I'd ever seen a star rating. And mm-hmm. but he had like everything was in like four hour blocks, and it was not complete shows. It was like selections. You know, the it wasn't necessarily a best of. It was almost like the most important of. And he would have some things that were just kind of promotion specific, and then he would have some other things that were like decade specific or themes or whatever the case was. And I just remember thinking, you know what, now that we have all of this footage, because this was probably 2010 would have been about four or five years after, like in the bootlegging world, everything really just got connected to um, DVDs, like everything was converted. You know, it was always VHS before that, then it became DVDs. You started seeing things in bulk that would have been unthinkable in the VHS tape trading era just because um of the space it would have taken up like the idea of having an entire season of any tv show there were people who did it but they that wasn't your typical tape trader but by the time that we got to like 2010 so much stuff had been transferred to dvd and it became possible to actually take all that stuff and go back to that original like john mcadam type idea of just kind of doing a selection of the best stuff and so I had been pitching um, the idea for a long time to Good Helmet. I won't say his real name just because I don't know if he wants it out there, but he was, that's a name that a lot of people will recognize (laughs) if they were into DVDs at all. Yeah, for sure. For during a certain time period. And so finally, you know, we, we, he was like, yeah, let's do this. And so I helped with like the selection and everything. I mean, I'm not, I didn't do it all by any means. It was, it was very much a tag team thing. And he, you know, he did the hard part, which was like the distributing and the making the disc and all that. But I was like, Hey, let's include this or, Hey, I'm going to go through everything that all Japan women had in 1994 and figure out everything that we need to include from that year. Like that kind of was more my role. And um, I remember that we started with, 1996 that was just because that was the year that came together first and the idea behind it was that you would have 30 four-hour disc and it became this really cool way to watch wrestling because of all the variety like you couldn't get burned out on a wrestler which sometimes happens if you watch like the best of any wrestler does and you just see match after match and maybe they're good but they're all kind of the same um here this was a cool thing like and i'm thinking about the year 1990 in particular this was so cool you would be like you'd finish an all japan match with like tenru and jumbo brawling and like someone's bloody referees are involved or something and all of a sudden from the pages of the world wrestling federation magazine here's update (laughs) this is like the coolest transition to me that is like everything to me i loved it so much like that right there, I think, captured the absence of it. And then you would finish that, and then it would be like, you'd be in the Memphis studio, and uh, Lawler would be coming out or something. So it was just like jumping around from place to place, but it was all in chronological order. So I got this crazy idea to start a thread for literally every single thing that was on every single disc. This took like five years. So it wasn't like I put my life on hold and did it. It was more just, you know, watch when you can, watch as sets come out. And it took about five years to watch everything. So in total for 10 years, 1990 through 99, it would have been about 300 discs, um, 120 hours a year. So like 1,200 hours of stuff. And it just felt like I 
it just really like I felt like I had started brand new as a wrestling fan again. Like it was just that same level of excitement that you have, you know, when you first get really into it. And I was just like, I gotta like put something out there that is based on you know what I've seen. And so I, I got this crazy idea. And the interesting thing about the like the rankings themselves, I don't even think were all that important because it was really just a snapshot in time. Like here's I woke up today and I like this match better than this match, which whatever. But I do think the matches themselves, like some things were things that people had talked about and known about forever. And then there were some things that maybe hadn't gotten much attention. And so it was that mix that I thought was interesting. And um, yeah, it was, you, you mentioned projects. It's my favorite wrestling project I've ever done for sure. Yeah, and it's it's really Herculean that just even the listing, just even if they aren't in order, just a listing of 500 matches that you should watch. What is funny is when I started rereading it this weekend, uh, I did note that the first 50, you had liner notes of other matches that were similar. And then I'm like, the next 50, it's like, that was too much work, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, enough of, enough of that. I'm just going to get this. I, I, knowing me, it's funny you say that, because knowing me, I was probably thinking, oh, I'll go back and do that later. And yeah. then I got it done, and I'm like, just screw this. I'm done with it. <laughs> if <laughs> so anybody is obsessive enough to watch all 500 of these matches, then they can just get in touch with me directly for the yeah. for the, uh, <laughs> the recommendation. It's like, at this point, you know what? I've done enough. Just yeah. take it. <laughs> take it off my hands. So. Exactly. Yeah, but um, it, was, it was so much fun. Um, it really was. Not even so much the ranking at the end, but just the process of going through everything and just seeing so many things that I either only heard about or had never even heard about and got to see. Um, it was really exciting. I mean, everything, when you go back and look at like, say even 1990, it's just, you were watching the business transform before your eyes when you watch this, you know, like, I mean, some people think back in 1990, myself as a fan at the time, I think of the Black Scorpion. I think of the Blade Runners coming of age with the Ultimate Warrior and Sting, but that's not the stuff that, that stuff, that's more stuff that the eighties influenced 1990 than stuff that influenced what came later on. If you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean because the eighties were the same way. I think for, until like, I'm going to say maybe some point in 1983, maybe I, I'm not sure exactly where the cutoff is, but it was really just seventies hangover. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I love the early eighties, but it's a very different thing than like, the last half of 83 84 especially and on from there like that's the real 80s so i always kind of think of it if you look at it like a colloquial thing i'm sorry for the big word but um <laughs> well done <laughs> if you look at it sort of like that the 80s like in quotes ended in 1992 i think when bill watts when it was obvious like bill watts is done like yeah. to me, when Bill Watts and Jim Ross left WCW, that was the end of the unofficial end of the 80s. Um, Bret Hart being made a champion around that time. That was the unofficial end of the 80s. So like mm -hmm. those were the key transitions, I think. Yeah. And I, I think things that were happening in like the 1990 that really, I mean, I guess the way I want come, one of the things that I really see is starting off is you know, one of the coolest things in modern wrestling is just how huge indie wrestling is. I mean, it's completely transformed everything in the business. You know, guys like CM Punk and Brian Danielson being the biggest stars. 
and you know being able to watch you know i one of my favorite things to do right now is to watch daniel garcia matches on iwtv it's a it's a really fun i've been actually trying to do the complete 2021 of him and uh, are you have you watched much of his work i have yeah he's he's really good he's really yeah. good i think he has a really bright future yeah so that, that's that's the kind of stuff that's fun and I mean, obviously, people are going to think that the real influence on uh, modern indie wrestling is ECW, and it is. But the mo- influence on ECW was two things. One is Memphis Wrestling and the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance. It's kind of a meshing of the two, as well as FMW. And all those things were really, you know, kicking. Memphis Wrestling wasn't kicking into gear. It was still in existence in 1990 and very relevant as well. Yeah, I, independent to me, the first big independent thing that like got a lot of attention was probably the Lightning Kid versus Jerry Lynn feud, yes. um, yeah. which, you know what, I don't even know if you count that because at the time, a lot of that hype came from what they did on the Global Wrestling Federation stuff, which I wouldn't quite consider that an indie I would consider that more of, um, you know, because they were nationally televised and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, I guess, where, where where my mind goes when I think about it because of that watching the project that we were just talking about. And you got to see all the stuff they did in 1990 and 91. And those matches blew away to me, the matches that were on global TV. But um, yeah, but I, I guess when I think about like the, the early stages, those are the guys I think of. And then as you get more into the 90s, I guess, you know, I think of people like Reckless Youth, uh, Ace Darling, Christopher Daniels, like guys like that, Devin Storm. Yeah, those those are the late 90s guys who kind of grew out of, uh, I mean, in, in the mid 90s, it would be, you know, you'd have your Al Snow as well, right? Yes, Al Snow, Sabu. Sabu was huge. Oh, Sabu is like such a huge influence in indie wrestling. And yeah, if you go back and look at his stuff in 1994, say, like, I mean, he was still great later, but like, I can't believe the intensity he was able to perform with and the just the, the ca- controlled chaos that always seemed to be going on when he was on your, on your screen. Yeah, I mean, wrestling had changed in a way where no one could be the Sheik anymore. Like, we weren't going to get that again. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. (laughs) But Sabu was, I don't want to say the modern version. I I don't think that's quite right. But he was a take on that applied to the modern scene, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know... uh... I guess, yeah, one thing I did want to talk about as well is like leading up into that scene is the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance and just their focus on having like indie super cards. Um, like I look at one of the, probably their first big card is in 1990 and, you know, they had a, they had a card in 1989, but in 1990 they had things like Bam Bam Bigelow and Terry Gordy. That That actually, that match went around quite a bit and the, everyone seemed to think that was a good idea. I remember seeing a Pro Wrestling Illustrated article in 88 that they had that match in Windy City Wrestling. And everyone seemed to think that was a good idea. And it was. So It was a good idea. It's funny to me because, you know, everyone... One thing that, you know, people hate, like, Vince language and verbiage and stuff like that. But it's almost like, yeah, people wanted to see it because it was good. But they really just wanted to call it Battle of the Bam Bams. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, like everyone's acting like Vince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you had that kind of stuff. And then you have like your your local Pennsylvania area stars like Brock and Rebel and Johnny Hotbody and Tony Stetson and the Cheetah Kid who would go on to some fame in ECW. Yeah. So so it's really, really fascinating to see the early <laughs> I guess the early onset of people losing their ass putting out good wrestling shows. Yeah, and I and I remember um DC Drake and Larry Winters kind of having something too. You know yes. what they, that would that would have even been before Lightning Kid and Jerry Lynn. So that well, that was probably the first feud on the independence that really got much attention. Like I I, I want to say they got some coverage in the magazines. They did. They got, yeah, they got a lot of coverage for Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, especially with the uh, the Eddie Gilbert uh, Cactus Jack matches. Right. Right. Yeah. And and that's another thing. Cactus Jack, like he had two runs. He had the one from 90 to 91 after he left WCW. Mm-hmm. And then he had the one in 94, 95 after he left WCW. So both times you have someone who's coming off of national, national TV, TV who's giving it all like a kind of a credibility. And he's not wrestling like he's taking nights off. You know, he's out there to prove something. So it just worked. It all clicked really well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I'm looking at one of their cards here as well. It's just really cool to see, like, it would have been cool to see the Cheetah Kid and Tom Pritchard against each other in 1990. Uh, Tom Pritchard is probably someone who I would say had quite a bit of influence on modern wrestling and really came out of that era, both territorially and, you know, kind of on the indie level as well. Like you mentioned, like, not considering global to be an indie, what would you consider uh, Smoky Mountain? (laughs) Probably a territory. Yeah, because because they were running a loop of house shows um, in a certain part of the country. They had weekly TV. Uh, it was a regional operation. I, I think I'd consider them more of a territory, even though they weren't. I mean, it, they were a territory, but they were also independent in the sense that, like, they weren't part of a larger governing body. Mm-hmm. But they They're... but they operated like the old territories did. Maybe the last territory because ECW is really it was a company more than a territory, right? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. So. At least at least eventually. At first, like in the Eastern Championship Wrestling days, it was probably a territory too. In fact, it was because it was NWA Eastern Championship Wrestling. So it absolutely was a territory initially. But yeah, yeah it grew to something beyond that. Yeah. And ECW again, you know, really I mean, my favorite wrestling that I've never enjoyed wrestling more than it is Ring of Honor from 05 to 08. Uh, I got to see a lot of it live and I watched every bit of it on DVD. And that was that much like Noah is what came out of nineties, all Japan uh, ring of honor is what came out of nineties ECW. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a comparison. I mean, ring of honor isn't really a lot like ECW as a product, but it, they no. are similar in spirit in spirit and just in, like finding a concept and just really, really committing to that concept. Yeah. Because, I mean, ECW, I mean, you know, there's people who thought the coolest stuff that happened in ECW was, uh, you know, the ultra violence. And trust me, I like that as well. And that's where that more kind of morphed into CZW and IWA Mid-South and other territories like that, other companies like that. Whereas, you know, kind of the, uh, 
the passion for storylines and some of the technical wrestling as well with the focus on Eddie Guerrero versus Dean Malenko and Super Crazy and Tajiri. Uh, those kinds of focuses really were embodied in Ring of Honor. Yes, yes, I would say so. Um, it, it's it's interesting to think about because, okay, so ECW really did operate, I guess, a, a lot differently in the sense that they had TV, they ran a lot of house shows, mm-hmm. um, and they had they had the VHS releases and the white boxes, but. I don't know that those were really big events. I mean, a lot of those matches re-aired on TV anyway, maybe in like kind of a re-edited form sometimes, but but it was it was different in that like it wasn't all about those events. Whereas Ring of Honor was to me, like the amazing thing about Ring of Honor is that they it was all about retroactive hype. So something happens. And then, like, the discs find their way to Dave or to various websites or whatever, and you hear comments about them, and they use those reviews as things to promote shows that have already happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty cool. And that's something I think that could, wouldn't have worked before that or after that, but there was this really narrow window in the 2000s where that was really a cool way to promote. Yeah, it's been really hard to recapture that. Yeah, I don't even know that you could now because most things are just going to go live right away. We're inundated <laughs> with content. There's so much content. I, I I think it's a lot different now. Whereas back then, I mean, if you look at the landscape, WWE was not catering to that type of fan. And then, I mean, and I can criticize WWE all day, but I don't even necessarily mean that as a huge dig. It's more just that, you know, that's just how they were running their business. And so there was kind of an unmet need there in terms of American wrestling and having something like that out there. The alternative Um, product. Right, right. So when you see, okay, here's this company that's just like extremely focused on great matches and that's what they're going to give you and, you know, you're going to get it every show and it's going to feature like really exciting young wrestlers and, They've kind of picked the best people from all the independents. Like there's there's something to that. Um, but yeah, it would be really hard to do now because not only the content universe has changed, but it seems like most of the people with buzz get signed very quickly. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's the, the opportunity to do that isn't there a lot of the time either. One of the things that I think is kind of like uh that was really influential with ECW and Tri-State is that every show mattered. You know, like it, it wasn't like the house show loop of WWE where it's like, let's do the same match over and over and give each, give each town the same show. It's like, no, each show is kind of its own, has its own identity. Yeah. And, it, and that's especially true about ECW because I think if you go back and look at ECW, like it, to me, it's not a match recommendation company. Like ECW no. is about the experience of seeing a show from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So, like, you can watch a, a pay per view, or you can watch, um, you know, one of the shows at the ECW arena. And maybe at the end of it, when you say, "Okay, what was the best match?" You have no idea. You just know that you were taken on a ride for the whole sh- for the whole time. So it was kind of like the experience of the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of the show more than like any one match you'd get those matches sometimes, but that really wasn't 
what ECW is about. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, you wouldn't necessarily, you'd, you'd, if you could travel back in time, you'd want to travel back in time for the experience of the show rather than just see one particular match, as you say. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I still love ECW. Some of it doesn't necessarily age well, but the stuff that does ages incredibly well. Um, yes. My, one of my favorite matches of all time is actually Shane Douglas and Two Cold Scorpio for when uh, Douglas won the TV title. I like that match a lot. I, I tend, I, it's odd because I tend to think a lot of the matches that age well in ECW were the matches that weren't necessarily trying to be classics. Um, mm-hmm. I really like uh, the Terry Funk Sabu barbed wire match. Yeah, a lot. A yeah, lot. That's like really that good stuff. Yeah, that might be my favorite. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that some more, but that's it's definitely up there. Um, and that's usually, I mean, I think people liked it, but it's usually not, you know, one of the things at the top that people mention. But I, something about that match stuck with me. Um, I mean, we we see <laughs> we see a different takes on like the Guerrero Malenko type thing pretty much every week now. So that's not something that like stands out to me much anymore. But, um, I mean, I respect it for its importance and what it accomplished and what it meant at the time. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't stand out to me in the same way when you're thinking about what's different and unique compared to the stuff that you see every week in 2022. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, they were presenting uh, Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn as classic matches in 1999, and that was great stuff. But, you know, there's been a lot more. There's probably been quite a few. You could probably see stuff just as good on most independents right now. Not most independents, but at least when you hit cherry pick the best of the independents, you see stuff just as good. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, something I'd like to ask you about, something that I know you're more of an expert on than me, is FMW. And maybe we could talk about its influence on uh, modern wrestling. Wow. So FMW to me is, is really cool because it's like, I think I, I had this idea of what it was before I really watched a lot of it. And then that turned out to be pretty wrong. Um, I think that I thought the appeal was the blood and guts. The ultimate violence. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is part of it. I'm not going to completely dismiss that. But most of the violence in FMW was implied. It wasn't something that you, like, it wasn't, like, gross and gory, necessarily. It was more theatrical and, and that, you know, it was all about Onita's charisma and his facial expressions and his reactions to things and finding himself in, finding himself in these wild situations and matches. And, um you know, empowering through it. So it was, it, that's to me what FMW was more about. I don't know that as far as influence on the, I mean, we saw that AEW tried to do the death match last year, which, <laughs> you know, it's funny because Omnita had to, when he tried to do the one in the US, he had to purpose, like specifically hype that he used his own company for the explosions <laughs> and all that because of that's the funny, AEW yeah. pay-per-view going wrong. But um, yeah, I, I think obviously the death matches were really influential. There was a lot of really good wrestling in FMW um, that I don't 
know that people see how much of that there was too. I mean, Hayabusa was kind of hit or miss in terms of being like a consistent wrestler, but he had some really great matches. Um, Shinzaki was there also, who you may, some of you, if you're listening, you may know him better as Hakushi from um, WWE, but he was um, excellent also. And, and really for the last four or five years of FMW, I mean, Onita was gone. So they were building around people like, um, like Hayabusa and Kanemura, who is another like really underrated wrestler uh, that's similar to Onita in terms of like, you know, he's a man of the people and had the great facial expressions and the larger than life personality and all that. And it's a role that he kind of grew into when he started there as a young lion but it's hard for me to think about i guess the influence on the modern scene i don't know that i see it so much i mean it, it's probably there but um i i think that's greatest influence is probably experimentation yeah being willing to do things that yeah that, that's a good way to put it being willing to do things that may or may not work i mean because fmw did take some chances for sure and sometimes it paid off, and I think most of the time it paid off. And the, but you know sometimes it didn't, and so maybe it made people a little bit more courageous. I, I think that's a good takeaway. And uh, what I I mean I like think what the other thing they did too is a uh, I don't know kind of a driftwood approach, like taking people that other places would discard, like Megumi Kudo and Combat Toyota, and you know Tarzan Goto, and really you know showing that don't let the mainstream wrestling define who is great and what is great. Well, yeah. And I mean, that was Onita's story too. So it's it's cool that he, you know, had that story kind of going for himself and then the same for, for other people. Um, Yeah. At some point, someone needs to gather a list if it hasn't already been done of all the people that were rejected from the all Japan women training that ended up becoming stars elsewhere because there were, quite a few yeah um, and it, there it, just wasn't enough room in all japan with all japan women because there was so much so much greatness that came through there right yeah and, and you know but i think it worked out because kudo when they were doing the interpromotional stuff in um you know 93 94 kudo came in for a few matches and those matches were really big and i think that it's because she had gone off and become a bigger star. She was a different type of wrestler than your typical all Japan women's wrestler. So I don't know that she would have fit in there over the long term anyway. She was, mm-hmm. a, she became a much bigger, it was like a good thing that it happened for her that she was dropped from training and she became a bigger star elsewhere. She had mm-hmm. the, the opportunity to kind of build something new. And then when she came back and faced Aja Kong or did a tag against Toyota and Yamada or whatever, you know, on the bigger shows, it mattered because she was seen as a big deal. And she was somewhat of a big fish in a little pond as far as the women's division in FMW went, right? Yeah, it was really just her, Combat Toyota, uh, Yoshika, Midomari, Shark, uh, Tushia. Um, I, 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 I think it's Suchia, actually. Um, but I, yeah, I can't... That, that's, that was pretty much the key group right there. I, I remember a few others in and out, but for the most part, it was just them. Now, uh, you did touch on All Japan Women, and that is definitely something I've watched a lot with some friends, uh, our friend Stephen Graham being one of them. And there is no question that that influenced the style of modern wrestling a great deal. 
Oh, absolutely. Maybe more than anything. I think, you know, people point to things like All Japan and the New Japan Juniors, but I think All Japan women probably had a bigger, bigger impact on the working style that we see now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they just came up with new moves all the time. They were doing stuff that nobody else was doing. Yeah, just going full speed ahead also, um, especially Toyota. Toyota is probably the most influential of them all. Um, There are others who who stand out, of course, but just in terms of impact, I I don't, I I think she had the biggest impact. Yeah, I got to say, watching Bull Bull Nakano is like some of the coolest stuff ever, though, from 1990. In terms of just being a, a boss champion. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, she, um, I've, I've seen her in the 80s also, and it's really cool how she kind of grew into that role. Dump Matsumoto retired in 1988, and so almost immediately you see Bull start to rise in the ranks. Like, Bull was always, <laughs> she was always like, like when she was with Dump Matsumoto, I always kind of saw her as like the first lieutenant who's a little bit overly committed mm-hmm. to the cause, like really, really seriously into it. <laughs> And, um, and that, so, but then, you know, dump retires and that creates an opening for her. And within a year, she's the champion or probably, I guess, within a year and a half or so. Yeah. It was the, the very champion. beginning in 1990. That's right. That's right. Cause she beat Nishiwaki. That's right. That's right. So she was, um, yeah, and she was champion for almost three years. And the idea there, I think was to groom Aja Kong, who they saw as the next champion because right away she started doing matches with Aja where she would not sell for her at all. And then the next match she'd sell for a little bit. And then the next match a little bit more. And it's just like a gradual thing. And then before long, you know, it took, it took like, you know, two and a half years, three years of, of build, but Aja finally was on her level and was able to beat her. Yeah. It's, it's Aja Kong is just cool as hell as well from that era. Honestly, just what everybody on the card is. Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, Hota, who like a lot of people, I guess, don't like because she kind of had a reputation for being unprofessional, but she was just such a brutal wrestler, like just through such great kicks and like was willing to take it and dish it out. And like her matches were just a lot of fun. Um, Toshio Yamada, another great wrestler. Hokuto, of course, you can't talk about Ultra Pain Woman without talking about Hokuto. Um, and I even like a lot of the wrestlers that necessarily, like they didn't necessarily peak in Ultra Pain Women or even have runs there. But um, like I like, um, you know, Ozaki and... Um, oh, Mayumi Ozaki is the yeah. coolest wrestler of all time. Yes. <laughs> uh, Dynamite Kanzai, um, who was, I guess... Basically, as soon as Aja was champion, she was doing for Kanzai what Bull did for her, and they were <laughs> doing their own two to three year story. Um, yeah, JWP I thought had a, a lot of really good and interesting wrestlers. Commando Bolshoi, who's gotten a lot more attention in recent years because she was just such a an amazing mat wrestler, and she was never—I don't want to say never, but and, she was usually and a comedy wrestler. Am I right about that? Yes, and yeah. often a comedy wrestler too, and she was not really the focus of JWP at any point, but her matches were pretty much like they were consistent. It was guaranteed to be watchable. Um, and a lot of it was great. So yeah, she's um, another one from JWP that I really like very different atmosphere, 
compared to all Japan women, but um oh and Devil Masami had you know her second career there. Yeah, so she Devil Mas <laughs> there's uh you could just we could do a whole series of podcasts about a Joshi in the early nineties, right? Yeah, just so many so many like legends and stars and yeah, just yeah, we, so, and we I don't we haven't even talked about them all. <laughs> yeah, no, it's someone of my my friends and I enjoyed that we watched uh, that kind of uh, re- retired early is uh, Bison Kamara. Yeah, she was really I, fun to watch. So. Yeah, and I think she was best suited for the role that she was in, where she was Aja's tag team partner. Like they were a really yeah. good team. As a singles wrestler, I mean, she was fine, but I think she just excelled as a tag wrestler. But mm-hmm. then as Aja continued to rise, there was less of a place for her. I think that's kind of what happened to her. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, we, we talked about Japan had some really interesting stuff, too, with, uh, say, even a company like that came out of FMW, which is Wing. So, you know, you look at your uh, your super indie type stuff, and that, that was happening there. I, I think things that are cool there is, like, for some strange reason, Eddie Gilbert and his brother Doug Gilbert come in as like, weren't they like Jason and Freddie or something like that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Eddie Gilbert, I think, did this um, promo in 93 where they got on the house mic and he like turned on wing and pledged loyalty to Baba. Um, yeah, which it, which was weird because at the time, Japan didn't run angles like that. Um so people didn't quite know how to take it. But yeah, the Gilberts had a run there. Wing, they did a, an interpromotional feud, which I've just kind of seen, started to see a little bit of in recent years against um, WWC out of Puerto Rico. Oh, yeah. So they would yes. do like the, you know how New Japan in the 80s did the five by five elimination yep, matches? The gauntlet matches. Yeah, yeah, the gauntlets. And like they would do those. I, I actually have footage of one of those in the 90s where it's, a five on five and like the guys from WWC are like Miguel Perez Jr. And um, I can't remember the others, but like, you know, but it's same concept. Yeah. Well, Mr. Pogo was very big in both, both territories, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then the headhunters as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, I actually think uh, Miguel Perez Jr. Is probably one of the great underrated and forgotten wrestlers of the nineties. He was really good. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's funny what, if there's anything that held him back, possibly. I mean, it's for one thing, not being uh, mainland North American, mainland American, but also his, his back hair as well. I, I seriously do think that probably impacted him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially in a company like WWE, which is where he was in, I think, 97, it was. Yeah. And yeah. And it's just such a superficial company that, of course, like, that's where they're going to focus. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, he was everywhere. Uh, so yeah, he, he's a he's, and he even appeared on WCW, which I thought was really cool. So um, that's right, he did. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's where I first saw him. Uh, he might have been against Laparka. I think I think you're right. Yeah, let me check here. I've got my handy dandy wrestlingdata.com here. Uh, he definitely he definitely did have a match on Nitro against Laparka. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a good segue. If you want to talk about influence on the modern scene, um, I think it says a lot that Tony Khan was a WCW fan. 
not yeah. as much a WWE fan. And I think that shapes a lot of what we see now. Um, WCW always felt like it was run by people that didn't understand what WCW was. Yeah. You know, like, I don't feel like the company ever had a strong sense of it, but fans did. Like, fans had got, like, what the parts that made it unique. Because most of the good stuff that happened in WCW was not because someone ordained it. It was because, like, the wrestlers just made it happen. They got you know, away like, with it. Yeah. Right, and got away with it. Exactly. Exactly. It wasn't, like, some great vision that came from the top of the organization. So, as a fan, you could there were things I think that you could see in WCW that maybe as a promoter or even someone like Dave, who's trying to like objectively, Dave Meltzer, who's trying to objectively kind of analyze the business. He's not going to see stuff like that either necessarily, mm-hmm. but, but the fans could. And so Tony, I think I, I kind of relate to that. You could watch WCW and say, okay, this is the company with the good wrestling. Like a lot of stuff is going to be kind of <laughs> haphazard. I'm trying to be nice about it, but but the wrestling is usually going to be really good. And I think WCW for most of their existence, probably until 2000 had a better, had the better wrestling and maybe even had the better roster. I, I don't think that changed until really late in the game for them. Yeah. And, that, that changed when, uh, when the radicals went to WWF. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think up until then, like you could go all the way back to the beginning and they always have a better roster. Um, not like in terms of star power, but just in terms of people who are good, like, Mm-hmm. depth you know people who could like put on a really good show um and then that changed you know later but but yeah I, I do think that influence in the sense that it's i think that's a really useful company to learn from if you're trying to do wrestling in 2022 because there are a lot of things they did wrong and it's important to learn those lessons mm-hmm. but it, there are also so many things they did right and a lot of that gets forgotten um, and I think Tony kind of, the feeling I get is that he kind of understands that. And so I, I, I think it's cool that he's drawing from that as an influence more so than like he grew up watching WWF. Yeah. And what was, what, what I really liked with WCW is, uh, and it's something I liked with ECW and even WWF in the nineties at times is just bringing guy, bringing people in for, uh, a show like a, a brief brief run and you see a lot more of that currently in fact in AEW you see that um, yeah yeah people can come in for one show I mean WCW was so famous for that I mean guys like well Muda was there he had a long run yeah but Liger came in for just a handful of shows and was so remembered even though he was only there a few times um those are probably, I guess, the, base, the biggest examples, but it shows that it can be done. Yeah, and I, I'm even thinking of things like uh, Miguel Perez Jr. coming in and, you know, uh, Hector Garza and, you know, uh, one the, the couple-week run with Ace Darling and Devin Storm as the Extreme, a, a tag team known as the Extreme, right? Right, right. Not having to sign guys to these exclusive contracts and, you know, like just letting things breathe a bit and just trying things out. And they're all going to use entrance music that you've heard for like four people before that. Yeah. And and that's okay. And that's okay. (laughs) Um, I think, uh, yeah, you know, probably, probably the biggest downfall I can say of WCW was just their 
one of their biggest downfalls for me was uh, that they went from like the coolest company in the world for tag team wrestling to like the worst, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, I, I, at this point, it feels like, like piling on on Hall and Nash is just, I don't know. It's been done so much that like there's probably not much benefit in doing it anymore. No. But that tag team did ruin the tag team wrestling in WCW. Like, there's not much way to deny that. No, and just, uh, you know, having, uh, I mean, Eric Bischoff was not a fan of tag team wrestling. It was a big part right. of it, too. Yeah. So, um, I guess, uh, I mean, you really saw it kind of come back with uh, a bit, both in a, TNA and uh, Ring of Honor, right? With like, you know, you saw guys come out of the early 2000s, like uh, the Briscoes and the SATs, that really mm-hmm. brought being a tag team back to being cool. And then, you know, moder- even more recently with the Young Bucks, right? And yeah, you know, it's funny. I always think about that. Like, guys like Hit Squad would be in AEW right now and they would be yes. huge. Um, yeah, and, and SATs, another example of that. The Briscoes, it, at that time, yes, they would also um, be really big now. Um, and I think it's cool how AEW has, um, they're kind of moving toward the trios as being a big thing. So I'm, Proper thing. yeah, I'm excited to see where that goes. And that's an interesting thing because, you know, other than world class in the 80s, we haven't really had that in the US. No. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess, uh, one of the things I find interesting too, I mean, we're that, you know, similar to uh, WCW and, uh, you know, Nitro and Raw is that, you know, I think WWF is so concentrated on like only having guys like having so like refined before they'll ever put them on mainstream TV. But, you know, it's like kind of their, some of their recent indie signings who aren't like the next in line type signings are getting their starts on AEW Dark. Yeah. So it's almost like a tryout for, for both companies there. Which, which, if you tie that back to the 90s, is kind of like working on an episode of Worldwide. Yeah. You know, at MGM, Disney MGM. Yeah, I really, I really love the AEW Dark stuff. I mean, I don't watch it. I just love the fact that people are getting their starts there. I'm really excited yeah. for Word of Honor to start up again, too. So. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity for Ring of Honor. I don't know what the vision is. There are a lot of ways you can go with it that I think can work. But what my thought is, and it's probably pretty pedestrian, but I like the idea of them copying what NXT was a few years ago. And Well, there's a market for it, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I see them as having quarterly specials, maybe at the same arena the night before every pay per view. If you have four or five pay per views a year, you can do four Ring of Honor specials a year that are in the same building the night before, so you can fill it up, and um, you just do these incredible cards, and then maybe on a streaming service, if you can't get on regular TV, you have a weekly show that builds to those quarterly specials, and it it's a mix. It's a mix of guys that you see something in that you're trying to develop and give ring time and you know help bring them along. I say guys, but women too. And then, yeah. um, and also it's, it's a mix of that and people that really are talented, 
but because the depth is so strong in AEW, like they're just they're not going to get the opportunity to shine in the way that maybe they should. Mm-hmm. Where where in Ring of Honor they have a legitimate opportunity to be real top stars. So, um, and to me, it should be the young guys. Like in my ideal world, like Daniel Garcia would be uh, the guy that they start to build around, right? And uh, Jonathan Gresham is in his 30s let's put him on AEW right and uh, by the way I'm a, a big Gresham fan as well so yeah yeah you know what do you think of um in Ring of Honor putting someone like um Pac who it's it's not that I, mean, I think that they see him as a star and I think they mm-hmm. see potential in him I really do part of it's his travel issues but also there's just it's like you get to a certain point, it's like, okay, do you really put him over people like Kenny Omega and Brian Danielson and, you know, CM Punk? Like, it's it becomes <laughs> tough to justify that, but that doesn't mean that he can't be, like, a, a big star who is a headliner. And so I could see someone like him doing really well in Ring of Honor, helping bring guys along and kind of yeah. working on top. Like, I, I think that might be a great spot for someone like Pac. And go there for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's a, it's a way to shuffle people around without because I mean, in the territory days, that's one of the things that they did, right? Yes, when people get stale on one side, you freshen them up exactly. And 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 I so I don't think they need to do any like AEW versus Ring of Honor thing ever, ever, no. because the problem with doing that is that someone in the if you do it, someone has to lose. Yeah. <laughs> And if you own both companies and you want both brands to be strong and for people to like both of them, why do you want to put either of them in the position to be a loser? You don't. Yeah. There's nothing to gain from it. So, yeah, no, it's it's really exciting times. And it seems like now that the sale is finally closed, like in their, you know, uh, you know, trademarking a logo, it seems like they're they're ready to hopefully get some TV for it and really go forward. So. We've talked about this, but I want to ask you this since we're on the podcast. Yeah. Um, the rumor that I've heard, I, I think it's just been kind of just very soft, but it's been around, is that AEW will be running a big show in Toronto fairly soon. Um, that would be tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it is their number you, one. You can for- crash, by the way, at my place if you need to. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean you, that to you and not everybody who might listen to this. Although oh, if okay. there's five people who listen to it, then I'm sure I can manage. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I know Toronto is the number one TV market for AEW. Yeah. Um, but I'm just curious, if you were AEW and you were going to book a show in Toronto, which venue would you select? Like, how, how big would you go? I think I'd take the uh, UFC approach and go with the Rogers Center right away. Wow. Yeah. I, I think they could do it with a big enough show. Capacity there is like 59, 60,000, right? Something yeah. like that. And then with wrestling, it's probably a little bit higher. Yeah. And, you know, you could plan for 40, right? And then yeah. make the most of it. And just keep selling until you yeah. can't sell anymore, right? Right. Um. And right now, do you think the COVID restrictions, like, because you, you want American fans to be able to travel. If I, I, I believe to get into Canada, you just, well, you need a negative test and then you have to take one on your way out. Is that right? Yeah, actually, no, it's, I, I think you're good to go now for the most part. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now the problem is like what happens if uh, things change, right? Like Ontario is much easier on it right now. Uh, Ontario has an election on June 2nd and that has a lot to do with it. Hmm. So it's so hard I can to say see... you know, with, COVID, with no COVID, I would say they go for the Rogers Center for sure. So I can see Tony maybe wanting to run Toronto and knowing it's a huge market, but also factors like that are important. Yeah. You know, cause it's not just a matter of, oh, okay, we can, if we build it, they will come. It's so much more complicated than that. Um, so he has to pick the right time and the first show in the market is probably going to be the biggest. So might as well go all the way with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, UFC was very successful with that, and UFC had a very similar like this was one of their biggest towns, right? What was their attendance? I, I don't remember. Uh, I can't remember, but they did sell out like oh, instantaneously. Did. Oh, yeah, and I, I was there as well. Uh, and that was kind of, kind of the end of my watching UFC just because it kind of terrified me seeing it live. <laughs> I can understand that. The, the, those knockouts are nothing, nothing uh, to sneeze at. Uh, to me, it's like the idea that there was, I think they've gotten away from it, but the fact that there was uh, bonuses for best knockout is basically bonuses for best induced concussion. Wow. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the weight cutting and stuff, I'm always reading about. Yeah, the weight like... cutting is uh, really weird. Yeah. So, um, so uh, something that we haven't really talked much about yet, but that I think we can definitely agree is some of the best stuff of the 90s and is certainly influential is All Japan. Yes. So uh, All Japan really transformed itself in 1990. I think it's probably... Uh, I don't think you could ever have a better example of, you know, so many parts and taking off other than Bret Hart leaving WWF and, uh, you know, Steve, the Steve Austin era. So there's a guy at um, Pro Wrestling Only. His name is Lee Cameron, and he's excellent. He's been doing translations of Japanese books about pro wrestling. I don't know if you've seen these. And I'm going there now. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been really revealing because there's a lot of history that like things come together in a way that, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense now. Or wow, what a wild story. It, it's just unbelievably good. Anyway, there's a Four Pillars biography that he's been recapping and translating. And I, he may be done with it now. I think he is actually. But anyway, um, at the beginning, they talk about the transition that All Japan went through in 1990. Apparently, Tenru did not know. Okay, so Tenru um, felt like the matches with Jumbo needed something different, like just to shake things up a little bit, and proposed doing a double juice match against Jumbo. And he proposed that to Baba. And Baba said no, absolutely not. But he gave no explanation. And that was one of the factors where Tenru was getting frustrated in all Japan and wanted out and left for super world sports. But here's the thing at the time, Jumbo had his hepatitis diagnosis, but it was secret. Only Jumbo Mm -hmm. and Baba knew. 
So oh, wow. Baba is telling Tenru, no, we're not doing that, but he's not telling them why they're not doing that. So, uh, so, so Tenru didn't know that the reason Baba was shooting him down was because of that. And then when, um, so, you know, two years later, when it actually became public, you know, because Jumbo had to retire because of his hepatitis, um, that's when Tenru found out. He found out with everyone else. So he found out way after the fact, but that was, you know, one of the things that prompted him to leave all Japan is that he wanted to, he had different ideas for where they could take the feud and do the matches. And, and that particular one was, was shut down right away without explanation. Yeah. So he's frustrated with Jumbo who's really saving his life. Yes. Or, or yes. And Baba. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so Jumbo, I don't know when exactly Jumbo got the diagnosis, but he knew in early 1990, but it was a secret where only he and Baba knew about it. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so there's so many tidbits about that, like like that in those threads that are just really worth worth reading and checking out. Things like offers that guys like Misawa and Kawada got to leave all Japan mm-hmm. around this time. Um, From New with- Japan, I assume, or? Uh, no, with from Tenru, like Tenru trying oh, to wow. him at certain times to come with him, and uh, you know, because he was close to both of them, and um, they just like, there were different reasons, and I think there were times when they may have considered it, but they felt like they needed to stay, and um, but yeah, the the transition in all Japan in 1990 is is. Like really interesting because it happened so quickly. Like there was a six man. Okay, so I think it was May fourteenth of nineteen ninety that Masawa takes off the mask in a tag match, and then like less than two weeks later, he's part of a six man, and they do that angle in the match with Jumbo where he like stiffs him, and the match just falls apart because Jumbo is like trying to get him back and like everyone's pulling them apart and all this like in the middle of the match and um two weeks after that is the Budokan Hall match where Jumbo lost and I think most people have heard the story there but supposedly (laughs) Baba saw all the merchandise that was being sold from Asawa that day and um like how fast it was moving and everything and and called an audible on the finish which is just I really hope it's true because it's so amazing. Yeah, he sent word to Jumbo through an intermediary. And the, <laughs> this is the funny part. He sent word to Jumbo through an intermediary. We're changing the finish. Masawa is going over. And Jumbo replied, oh, by DQ. And then that went back. And then, no. <laughs> and no, nothing more was said about it. It was just like, nope, not that way. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, and that was all that needed to be said. And Jumbo did the honors, and a star was born. And it just, I, I have a hard time thinking of any time where anyone was put over better than this. Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it, I mean, I mean, you can say Brett and Austin '97, but I think Austin was pretty close to there, anyways, right? Like he was a huge deal in '96 and '97. Yeah, I, I think it. I mean, well, Brett left before they were. Brett was able to actually put him over properly, which shows yeah. you that it was going to happen with or without Brett. Brett would have helped him, sure. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but you know who benefits from that sometimes is the veteran. Like if you look at 1990 to 92, all Japan, when Jumbo was feuding with Misawa yeah, and his that's, friends. That's a good call. Jumbo benefited from that as much as they did, maybe even more in some ways. And because, um, I mean, he, his team got their share of wins. The young guys got their share of wins. Um, it was always an open question. He did jobs that were kind of strategic at the right times in the feud to keep it interesting. And, but he wasn't like on the losing side every week or anything like that. Like they, he was actually kind of revitalized by it all. And it allowed him to take on a new role. It made him interesting again. It, I mean, just the lesson there. I mean, and the WCW guys are like the worst example in history of not understanding this. Yeah. That when you work with new people, you benefit. <laughs> you really do. Like, even if you have to do more to get them over to start, once they're over, you're fresh too. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, Yeah, the Goldberg stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, and even, I mean, guys like Jericho in WCW, like, you could have done a Jericho feud with with some of the top guys, and it would have yeah. worked. Um, you know, the, there's just, there's a lot of examples like that. And, um, but yeah, they, they, I, there was just such a tunnel vision of, like Hogan always wanting to work with the same people that he'd always worked with. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't the only one, you know, it was flair had some of that in him too. He did. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a lot of guys on top that just didn't see that <laughs> we've got to make some people we're going to benefit from this. If we can do that. Yeah. And, and grumpy old man, Jumbo was one of the best runs I, I think in hit wrestling history, just such a cool character at, at around the end of his career. And I really think you could see echoes of it if they do it, if Ring of Honor is willing to do Grumpy Old Man Samoa Joe. Yeah, that would be great. You could really, really would. you could really define the company around that and like really define putting over, you know, a new generation next. And he doesn't necessarily have to be a babyface or a heel to do that. He can feud with both. Mm-hmm. He he can he can have opponents on both sides. I just lost my mind. I just thought of the fact that maybe they could do a new, you know, launch a new generation next and have the old generation next come back and attack them. Uh, <laughs> if Roderick Strong gets his wish and is released. Yeah. There's um, there really is a lot of, a lot of potential there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that I like that a lot. Also, I mean, I can understand not wanting to put Danielson in ring of honor for what they're paying. Oh yeah. He shouldn't be there, but you could have yeah. guest spots. So. He should have guest spots, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, All Japan in the 90s had the four pillars. And just in terms of, you know, executing stuff up and down the card over such a many years character arc, it's, you know, it's the most Shakespearean wrestling I think there's ever been, probably. Yeah. yeah. And, and they set up some, excuse me, so many long-term things with... Um, you know, as I was feuds with Kawada and Kobashi, mm-hmm. and it took them both years to catch up to him. So, you know, with the Kobashi, that spilled into Noah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just like a really long term thing for both of them to get to a point where they had caught up to him. And what was funny is that Tawei got there first, which was unexpected, which I always thought was cool too. 
And also that Misawa, when he won the Triple Crown the first time, he was on that two-year run, and everyone thought, oh, it's going to it's gonna be Kawada, it's going to be Kawada, and it turned out to be Dr. Death, which also yeah. makes sense, given where both were at the time. Like, that was also a good move, so it was just some cool stuff. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Dr. Death, actually, in his book that I flipped through only... Uh... I remember one of the chapters was called 1994, my career year. So that's, and he was in there with all the, all, all, all those guys, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was even surprised, you know, cause his WCW run in like 99 was just nothing. His WWF run was nothing. And I remember being surprised cause I saw some 2000 all Japan stuff, some early 2000 stuff where he was back with those guys. It's like, he still had more in the tank than we got to see for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because even actually, in 2000, he was still pretty good. I, I like the fact that they brought uh, Mike Rotundo over and had him team with him there. Yeah. yeah. I really think that was... They were they were a tag team that... Uh, I mean, they got really overshadowed by the, you know, on on seating the Road Warriors kind of thing. But uh, they uh, that was a really cool tag team. Yeah, I, I'll always love the varsity club. Just... Yeah. Just the whole idea behind it and, like, the idea that Kevin Sullivan had, like, turned, like, all these college jocks, like, into Satanist. Yeah. (laughs) This is so great. It's like, he's a cult of, like, Satanic jocks. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty great. (laughs) Um, One of the... uh... Yeah, and I don't know, (laughs) has it ever occurred to you that, like, the kryptonite for the road warriors was apparently Mike Rotundo since he ended their WWF tag team title run as well no, no. I never thought of that yeah. you know and part of that maybe it's hard for me to think of Mike Rotundo as one person I think yeah. there, are some, there are some wrestlers who suffer from this because they've changed personas so many times that you don't really think of them like as having like a through you know like you think of their different runs as truly different people and they work yeah. and he's such a great example of that because yeah, you don't think about all the times like, okay, he worked with the Steiners in both companies. He worked with, um, you, you know, all these wrestlers in both companies, the Road Warriors in both companies, um, because you think of them as separate things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he, he made a good amount of money playing different characters and, you know, <laughs> basically a guy that wouldn't necessarily early in his career be seen as a character guy, you know got a lot of mileage out of it something hilarious to me by the way you just because you know vince had to be like sitting on the headset and flipping his lids you remember when jim ross came in to the wwf in 93 and he would do he was just acting the same acting like the same jim ross he always had so when irs comes in he's talking about syracuse and that's (laughs) his his amateur background and all this and i'm like i'm sure vince is like what are you doing (laughs) like tell us that's where he got his mba for for god's sake yeah yeah (laughs) i always you know what though i always had this this fantasy in my head of mike rotunda as a guy who um Okay, so he, <laughs> there's a story here. He inherited his wealth, and then he used that to form a startup with Alexander York, which yeah. he quickly turned around, he flipped right away after starting it. He sold all, the, all of his shares to her and left 
to pursue his lifelong dream of becoming an accountant. Yes, I mean, and, and then it's, there's, I don't know, I think, oh, oh, and if you go back further, actually, like, he started as just a wrestler and then realized that, like, he needed to, you know, pay more homage to his alma mater, and then yeah, along the way, he's like, but, but I really like sailing. <laughs> yeah, that's one of my favorite lines from Mick Foley's book is for some yeah. reason Mike Rotondo went from being the captain of the team to the captain of the ship yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, oh I, I, I love wrestling man yes, I, I do too I, I mean I think it's fun to like think about all this stuff in a way that like to try to make it make sense like um, you know Kevin Nash was like stuck in like this terrible like land this black and white land of like you know i don't know old turner movies or something and then the mafia bailed him out he became Vinny vegas and then when he got in deep with the mob he had to skip town yeah. so he left and became a truck driver and, <laughs> and took on a side job as a bodyguard yeah um, exactly so he could pay the mafia back and <laughs> once he got that under control, he was able to focus on his career, finally became a champion, and then um, decided that he was mad that that company didn't like stand up for him when he was having all that trouble with the mafia. So he went back to WCW in 96 and decided mm-hmm. to participate in a hostile takeover as revenge. <laughs> <laughs> How about the guy who went from being a fake Russian to SM? gear to a repo man followed by being a golfer <laughs> yeah I, I i need to find a way to make sense of that at some point yeah that would be a fun project <laughs> oh good stuff yeah yeah so i mean i think we can say all japan definitely is, you know you look at like guys like eddie kingston there's definitely an influence there and uh michael Alkin for better or for worse good wrestler you know <laughs> horrible human being but yeah lots of that going around yeah there's a lot of that um new japan also has had its influence especially on a you know later 90s uh later later 90s stuff like uh new japan with the uwfi feud and even the 80s stuff like with uh with uh you know choshu and stuff like that really influenced nwo stuff yeah you know it's Weird when I think I remember when New Japan started getting hot, like in the early 2010s, or you started hearing more about it. And I remember checking it out, and I, I, just one of the thoughts I had was that it didn't feel like it, it was connected to its previous history at all anymore. Like it just felt like a brand new company. It didn't feel like a continuation of the 80s and 90s New Japan. Um, it was, you know, because you have guys like Tanahashi who were there like in 2000, you know, and all that. But I guess Enochism was so bad and ran the company into the ground so much that they kind of just wiped the slate clean in a lot yeah. of ways and started fresh. But you don't really see, I mean, you see a little bit of it here and there, but to me, it doesn't feel like there's continuity between like the old era of New Japan and the current era of New Japan. It, no, it, there's there's definitely a wasteland in between. There's yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that because I feel like New Japan. I, I was thinking about this because someone asked us on Twitter, like greatest wrestling company of all time, 
I was like, well, it has to be either New Japan or CMLO. Like, those are probably the top two contenders. And then when I thought about it, I'm like, you know, New Japan really does have that wasteland. But maybe there was stuff in there. It's just that nobody was watching, really. But maybe there is stuff in there that was worth seeing. I, I don't know. It's Yeah, it's probably <laughs> not as long as people think either, right? Because, I mean, into 2004, they had some interesting stuff. Like, uh, you watch the... Uh, you watch stuff like the uh, the Tenzan kind of brief title reigns and stuff like that, you know, and like his feud with Kojima. That was kind of, that was some cool stuff. And the biggest problem is probably the Brock Lesnar title reign, right? Like that's the biggest. Yeah. And then you watch the rise of Tanahashi. So, oh, yeah. Sorry, are you hearing those beeps? I'm sorry about that. I did. Yeah, no big deal. I, I was just thinking about how I think it was 2000. Five, I want to say that I saw that Liger and Kanemoto worked the G1. It's like, well, that's really cool. I'm, mean, you know, Liger had done the G1 before, and maybe Kanemoto had too, but just I think that may have been the first time they were both in it. I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I just remember thinking, oh, that's really interesting. And I could see someone who was a longtime fan of New Japan and the 90s and everything kind of being interested in the fact that years later they're both being positioned as players in like the annual heavyweight tournament so um there probably is stuff my point of that being that there probably is stuff worth seeing in those years where it seems like not yeah. many people were paying attention every yeah and nagata had some had a great first title reign as well so yeah but yeah. they kind of sh- they kind of destroyed him beforehand with the lost to Mercoco crop right? right right yeah so there's something that also is influenced modern day is shoot style yeah you know i, I it seems like, I mean, there are guys who do map-based stuff, and it seems to be making a little bit of a comeback in the last year or two, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. There's not as much of it as I'd like to see. Yeah. There was that really cool uh, run there where, like, you had Chris Hero and uh, Timothy Thatcher and Drew Gulak and Biff Music were all, like, uh, the four guys doing, like, huge amounts of shoot-style shoot stuff. And you're seeing a bit of a comeback for it now as well. Yeah, and it, I guess it's really, I mean, at this point, because we know now that it doesn't look anything like shoots. I don't want to say anything like, but it doesn't really resemble shoots as much as maybe we thought when we were watching, you know, UWFI or PWG. Yeah. I, I think the PWG important thing in is the 90s. it doesn't need to look like shoots either. Right? It, exactly. It can just be an homage to that style because that style on its own, even even then still had merit, like the ring mm-hmm. style and, and all of that. And I remember, um, I think there's a match in Jersey All Pro in 2002 with um, Loki and Danielson. It's like just ring style, you know, and it's, it, it's great. I love it. And um, I'd love to see more of that now. I think, you know, there was U style briefly in like 2004 where Tamura was kind of just doing a nostalgia run. But even just doing a nostalgia run, it's great. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, I guess I, there's shoot style out there. There's not commercially successful shoot style. Yeah, that's yeah. probably a good way to put it. Yeah, because Bloodsport, I guess, you know, we're saying... Oh, this, Bloodsport, Bloodsport is probably the, the most successful stuff. I yeah, know. I mean, and they did that show, WrestleMania Weekend, that got a lot of play, actually. So mm-hmm. I guess I shouldn't be too quick to say that 
it's not happening now. It's just, um, you know, I wish it was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it'd be cool to see some more stuff out of the out of Japan with it as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the things to me that the best things that TNA ever did was, and, and that I would love to see if they could logically work their way to it, something like this in AEW, was when they did the Jeff Jarrett versus Kurt Angle thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the MMA uh, style. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just so great. <laughs> I love it so much. And um, I'd love to see something like that in AEW. I mean, it has to be built, right? You don't just throw it out there. But if they could come up with a way to, like, okay, this is our destination. Now let's build to it. I'd love to see something like that. Yeah. Or even, like, uh, the kind of sport build to a very shoot style, like a match between... Samoa Joe winning the TNA title from Kurt Angle in 08. Yeah, that when they had that lockdown, is that what you're talking about? The yeah, 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 that was really good. Yeah. So, and of course, uh, I think one of the things that we're both a huge fan of that really had a lot of influence on modern day stuff is lucha. Yes. Yeah. So you had the splinter. The you know you had the death of the UWA replaced. Somewhat replaced by AAA, not to, not a direct connection, but um, you know, like really, AAA had this had the early years where it was kind of, kind of like the modern wrestling company. Yeah, the the really cool thing about early AAA is that you can see influences from everywhere, not just traditional lucha. Like yeah. they they were really incorporating elements of what was working in all the territories in the 80s and before that even in some cases um you saw a little bit more flair like no pun intended but just with the (laughs) production and like the kind of the sports entertainment was there a little bit you saw like the flashier entrances um it was really big at the time it really was it felt very um cutting edge and kind of in a way I don't know, the early 90s are so weird to me because wrestling was on fire all over the world, except for in the U.S. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then even in the mid-90s, you know, before Nitro, even then, like, wrestling seemed to be really good everywhere. And I I mean, it was even good at times in WWF and WCW, but it was cold. Um. But it was picking up and people were doing cool things and new things everywhere except WWF and WCW. Like yeah. they were they were really <laughs> late adapters. And so then by the late 90s, they're kind of just finally getting on the train with everyone else. And um, you know, of course it blows up, but it's interesting. Yeah. So um I think uh one of the guys that's probably a bigger influence than some people might realize is uh, L Dandy. Yes. So you watched a lot of his 19 early 90s stuff. Can you talk a bit about kind of his rise and his peak? Yeah, I don't know if it's it's hard for me to point to him as an influential figure. Maybe he was. I, I don't know. I, I but he was definitely a great wrestler. Um he to me he was a guy and I've watched more of his 90 than 89, but supposedly his 89 is like this too. So it's really like a couple of years. Yeah. Um, He could do it all. So you see him, you know, 
Technico and Rudo. You see him um, like in like wrestling clinics and in brawls. You see him in great trios matches. Like he's just really running the gamut and doing everything um, that you can do in Lucha and excelling at all of it. Um, he was tag team partners with Satanico and then they broke up and had their feud in the latter half of 1990, which was also, which was incredible actually and culminated in the hair match that, um, that actually more, okay, so that there were other standout El Dandy matches in that year, but the hair match was, I think the only one that actually got a lot of praise in real time from people who were watching um so that was you know that wasn't so much a new discovery but it was still you know a classic match um but he had a match against Angel Azteca in June which was just a, an outstanding wrestling clinic like kind of a match of the year contender I would say I think at one time I had it as the best match of the best match of the year and I may have um reconsidered that later but it's still like in that upper you know that top tier mm-hmm. um yeah it was just a really fantastic year from a fantastic wrestler it was cool to see him in a new light considering that in wcw he was kind of a bit player um and i think he had fun matches in wcw but you didn't really see that like this is a guy who had a long run where he was treated as a serious top wrestler working in long competitive matches with other great workers and big arenas. And I don't know that, you know, there's anything about his WCW run that would make someone think that, but no. it was there. It was well, there. What's, what I find interesting about his WCW run is one of the most famous things about him is the whole Bret Hart saying, who you didn't know about Andy. And the interesting thing is he's probably, they're probably very much an equivalent to each other. Yeah, I don't think there's a huge gap. And, and I'm sure that people will hear that and say, what? <laughs> Especially in recent years where it seems, or recent months where it seems like Bret Hart love is kind of returned. Yeah, no, um, no, I love that. I'm a big Bret fan. I just think. Uh, yeah, yeah, me too. Dan, Dandy in terms of his place, like, uh, like just the type of wrestler he was and his like place in the place in the country and stuff. I think, I think they're very much tight. And I kind of see the two of them as being, Two of them and Misawa is all kind of being the same kind of guy, right? Yeah, like the the wrestler, like the classic yeah. wrestler who situations find them. It's not so yes. much that they find situations. Yeah, I, exactly. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and then you know, like, yeah. So, CMLL is probably overshadowed by AAA for a lot of the. Uh, 90s but really had some great stuff still i mean negro cautious is great in every decade pretty much yeah and i think triple a by 95 like certainly by 96 yeah definitely by 96 yeah absolutely by 96 but by 95 they're starting to wane a little bit the newness is wearing off and you start to see cmll make a comeback but yeah even during those years that were kind of tough on cmll like 92 to 90 four or so um they still had some really good stuff um <laughs> a lot of it featuring casas that's when jericho was there and had his run and he fit in pretty well with everyone um that's um i think ultimo was there during that time 
Um, that's actually when the whole thing happened with Oro's death. Um, yes. Which was later in 93. Um, Costas had some great matches with um, Moko Kota and um, La Fiera and some others, which I, I remember from those years. And then I think Santo was back, I want to say, by the end of 95. And he had a great match with Casas when he came back. And then in 96, they kind of started rekindling their feud. Santo had his famous heel turn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a three-way feud with both of them and El Dandy. And then in that kind of carried over into 97, which was a really great year for CMLL. Yeah, they had that big match in uh, December 96, Mask versus Hair mm-hmm. versus Hair. Yes, yes. Which, and, interestingly enough, in your list of the top 500, it comes in at number 25. Yeah, and, and you know, what's interesting is that Casas is not a big part of that match at all. Like, he's just kind of, he's in quickly and then is like, screw this, and <laughs> he's out of there. And it becomes an extended Santo versus El Dandy match. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I guess kind of to wrap up, Charles, I kind of got like to go through your top five Uh from the 90s, uh, just because they're all very different. Uh, and they're you don't have to go by memory. I have them in front of me here. Oh, but, thank uh, you. I was going to say, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Number five, you have the match that some people might have number one of all time. So, And I know you, you could easily be one of them, so it shows how much you think of the matches above it. And that's uh, Akira Hokuto versus Shinobu Kandori. Uh, all Japan Women Dream Slam, April 2nd, 93. Anyone who hasn't watched this, uh, you need to go out of your way to watch it. Probably yeah. one of the best matches of all time. So, so many things stand out when I think about that match. Do you remember the table? Yes. <laughs> like, I've never seen a table look like that after a bump in my life. Like, the only, I don't know that I ever want to again. Yeah, there's, there's no way that I can do justice to it, except just to say watch that match and just wait for the table. The other thing Hokuto always did is that she always had this cast. Like she, When she wore a cast, it was always so freaking tight and just looked really rigid. And it's like, my God, it, it just looked really legit and it always added a lot to her matches when she was wrestling in a cast because it was so tight. Um, but the match, I think, was kind of designed to play off of her history, her legit history of injuries. So there was a match in 87 when she was fairly young in wrestling and she had broken her neck and was pretty famous for that. And then continued the match. She kind of held her head yeah. on top <laughs> of her neck to finish the match. And then in 1990, she was part of a Grand Prix match against Toyota and she went for a dive to the floor and went shin first into the guardrail. And the match kind of came to a screeching halt and she was out for not very long, but she was, she did miss some time. Um, But it was a pretty severe injury. So, and then in the first like few minutes of this match, you know, so you're going in with that history and in the first few minutes of this match, she gets into Kandori's face and is, you know, telling her off and all this stuff. And then Kandori, um, breaks supposedly breaks i'm I'm using air quotes which you can't see but breaks her arm Mm -hmm. and she's um she's out you know and so she's on the floor and 
you know, you have <laughs> if you see Brandon Cutler on AEW TV now, how he's always spraying everyone with everything. I really think it originated with this match because they're spraying her arm, and um, you know, that's entirely and, possible. Yeah, and then the whole story of the match kind of becomes that Hokuto is working through yet another injury. And has to find whatever she can find within herself to overpower it. At one point, her face is so bloody that you can't even make out anything on her face. Her eyes, her nose, like nothing. But her body language is so strong that it's like you can see her face anyway. <laughs> it's it's really incredible. Um, but yeah, one of the greatest matches of all time. Yeah. Uh, I... I might have it number two, actually. Yeah, I mean, I, I might look at it now and even have it number one. I, yeah. the, the thing about these rankings is that they're just such a snapshot for what you thought that day, and especially when you get to this level, they absolutely yeah. can go either way. Yeah. Then next you have uh, Mitsuhara Masawa versus Kenta Kabashi, uh, All Japan New Year's Giant Series, January 20th, 97. I have not watched this. Sounds so like this, I should. Yeah, so this was when Kabashi lost the Triple Crown. For the first okay. time. And um okay, so an interesting thing about this match, I think when it aired and he he'd won it from uh Taue. Yes, yes, earlier in '96. And I think an interesting thing about this match is that when it aired initially, um it was only the last 20 minutes or so. It's like a 50 45 minute match, I want to say, something like that, but only the last 20 or so minutes. And so the rating that David given it was based on television. And it was below, you know, five, it was like four and three quarters or something like that. Yeah. Um, but that's like, I guess, what people knew for a long time. But yeah, this match was probably, I think at one time I may have thought it was All Japan's last match at, at I, that level. And I've, I've just checked the footage out there of it now is like 53 minutes, 49, 53 minutes. So that's a lot of out of it. I knew it was a long match, but yeah, I just I just remember just getting really lost in it and really buying the finish in a big way where like Misawa just pummels him with, with the, the elbow. And that's just it's just, it's just a, such a simple finish. It was just perfect. Um after just this really long and grueling match, and you know, Kobashi goes down fighting, like so they do the title change, but they do their absolute best to make sure that Kawashi comes out of it better than he went into it. And I think they accomplished that. Yeah, that sounds, that's definitely something I need to check out. Uh, then number three, you have something that I have seen, which is Manami Toyota and Toshio Yamada versus Mayumi Ozaki and Dynamic Kansai from All Japan Dream Rush, November 26, 92. This is the first, this is a two to three falls match and it's the first of a series of three matches. Uh, one of the cool things that I know I've heard from that I heard from you is that I read from you, I should say, is, you know, people watch this and they might assume that Ozaki and Kansai are like longtime partners. If you haven't, you know, weren't that familiar with them, but they were usually rivals, correct? Before and after? Before and after. Yeah. yeah. I, I think like for years after even, I, I want to say like they're probably fighting each other somewhere right now or. Yeah. They, <laughs> but um yeah, they. So what I loved about over, it over is, who picks up the check at uh, Tawei's restaurant or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. They don't need much reason to fight. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, they, and I thought, so you have that team against another team that they are tag team partners, but they've also had their problems this year. And they um, had the hair versus hair match. They had the hair versus hair match and Yamada got her head shaved, which is a fascinating post-match, by the way, if no one's ever seen it, where, or if anyone is listening who hasn't seen it, just because Toyota starts having second thoughts about like, why am I making my friend, my friend go through this and start saying, don't do this. There's no reason for you to, and Yamada's like, no, I lost the match. And, um, but anyway, I guess the idea was you have two teams that have both been kind of to hell and back against each other all year. And now here they are teaming, representing their companies. So, so it's, it's a really interesting dynamic. And this just felt like one of those matches where just everything is just clicking perfectly. I, I, I don't even know how to mm-hmm. explain it, but um, it was the, it was the launch of the interpromotional era that all Japan women would have that would carry it through 95. So this set up like, you know, almost three years of stuff. And um Sometimes I think it's the greatest match I ever saw. And yeah. Yeah. I, I, I know I that's what I've heard you say, which is why it shocks me to see it at number three. And it just speaks highly of what's above it. Yeah. I mean, the, it really is. I mean, we're in God territory here. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's very competitive. Yeah. And uh, I do love the other matches as well. Uh, I really love the opening to the second match they have. Um, mm-hmm. just, you know, I won't, I won't spoil it for anybody who wants to go and watch seek those out it's just and uh I, you're not huge in the third match which is actually a straight one fall match uh you know, not as huge as the other two anyways right um yeah the, the third one i i don't remember liking quite as much it's possible if i watch it again i might like it more i just remember it not really standing out to me so much at the time yeah. seemed somewhat unnecessary i think to some people but i liked it quite a bit um, number two, you have Kiyoshi Tamiya versus Yoshihisa Yamamoto for rings in June 24th, 99. Haven't seen this one either. So this match just like hit me like a brick came out of nowhere. Wasn't expecting it. Um, I got five stars from Dave Meltzer, if I recall. Yeah, it either did or he just kind of summarized it in a way where it's clear that's what he wanted to give it. Yeah. I want to say it was one of those where he did it and just left the stars off. Something like that. But but yeah, it was. It's a twenty-minute draw, and it's just like really exhilarating because it just—I don't know—it's just like the emotion of it and the way it keeps escalating. Um, the last five minutes are just probably the most electric wrestling I've ever seen, just in terms of like all the drama and everything kind of culminating. Um, and Yamamoto, I think you know, because Tamura, like. If you, if for anyone who's never seen him, like you look at him and you, this is a guy, if you look at him, you're like, holy shit, this is a guy who knows his, like, he, like he's, he's got everything under control. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he just looks like a wrestler. He and, wouldn't have to threaten me for my lunch money. I'd just hand it over. Yeah. And it's not even because he's huge or like imposing. He's not like Brock or anything like that. He just looks like this is a guy who trains while we sleep. And um, like we'll rest, we'll tie us all in knots, like just easily. But anyway, so you have that, and you have Yamamoto, who's a great athlete, who 
but he doesn't have that presence of um, Tamura, but he's holding his own with him repeatedly. And they'd had matches before this, and those matches are great too. But I think this was the best one because you're truly seeing Yamamoto like rise to the occasion, become just as good and just as focused and capable as Tamira in every way. And just a really exciting match. I'm probably not doing it justice, but it's it's an all-time classic. The so you best can know shoot... people like Yamamoto too. So. Yeah, the, the, well, the not best, tonight. But... <laughs> the best um, shoot style match I've ever seen. Yeah, and probably kind of the culmination of a lot of the, the 90s the 90s scene for that because it's, it didn't last much longer than this, I don't think. Yeah, and you know what? I just said it's not... Then I remembered my number two, and I'm like, yeah, I guess it's not the best shoot style match I've ever seen, but it's it's right there. Yeah. Um, do you remember what your number one is? Um, yes, but I think I remember my number two also. No, that was your number two. Oh, I thought it was my number three. No, that was your number two. You're probably uh, okay, thinking so, uh, that Kusaka was your number, your next one. No, so number five was. I'm sorry, number five was um, was what? Hokuto and Kandori, then That's Misawa right. Kobashi, Toyota Yamada versus Ozaki and Kansai, then Tamara versus Yamamoto, and your number one. Is That's Doug right. Furness and Dan Crawford versus Kenta Kobashi and Siyoshi Kokushi from May 25th, 92. Thank you. There was no, there was a Fujiwara versus Takata match from UWF that I think I had rated fairly high in October of 1990. And I, and October 25th, I, 1990. You have it at number 22. But yeah, like 22. such great matches above it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking, wait, did I have that one higher? But because those would probably be my top two shoot style matches or pretty close to it. But anyway. Yeah. Be- before we get into the number one, I got to ask you, there's a match from, you have at number 20, El Samurai versus Shinjiro Otani from January 21st, 96. Their most famous match was in 97, correct? Yes, their their most famous. Well, that was, no, that was um Samurai and Kanemoto. Oh, that was the, the finals of the Super Juniors. Yeah. Okay, I thought I this, thought it was actually uh, Samurai and Otani. So. so this match, I'll give credit to JDW for kind of putting it out there because I think he had it as his number one New Japan match of the '90s on that DVR post that was everywhere for years. You know which one I'm talking about when JDW yeah. did those. Um, so I'll give him credit for like putting it on the radar on my radar so that I knew it was there. But yeah, it's it's interesting because it's a juniors match and it's all on the mat. Wow. It's and and it's That's all cool. it's all kind of a shoot pro hybrid mix. Yeah. Um it's it's really good. It's it's definitely worth seeing. It, it kind of it was interesting to me. It's like this would have been a really cool direction for a wrestling to go. It didn't go in that direction, but that's when you watch it, you kind of think, oh, it would have been nice to see wrestling like become this. Yeah. That's that's really cool. I'll have to. I, I think I've I I thought they had their match in '97, but I am more than happy to be mistaken on that. Um, but then Furnace and Crawford versus Kobashi and Kikuchi. Uh, so many things that can be said about it. I mean, people think Southern tag wrestling is the penultimate type of wrestling tag wrestling. I really think that could be argued, but this is up there just as much. Uh, I think that's even more so than as far as a prototype goes is more of a prototype for great tag wrestling than even uh, the 
June 95 one with Kobashi and Misawa against Kawai and Atawa and Kawada, which is a great match. But this is more like if you want to show young student wrestlers how to have a great tag team match, this is one of the ones he'd show them. Yeah, it, I mean, this doesn't have like the rich history or the uh, or characters of the a lot of the matches with the four pillars, but it yeah, it it's more. Um, I don't know. It feels almost. I, I'd even use the term idealistic because we've got four guys in there who are just just trying to have a, the best match they possibly can. It's not trying to be anything more than that, um, and it's really cool to see. I, I think one of my favorite things about this match is that. Is it's its release history. So when it first aired on Ultra Pan TV, I think it was like eight minutes, an eight minute clip. Mm-hmm. And then it came out on a special edition of Classics and it was 15 minutes of the match. It's like, okay. And then it came out again on another version of Classics and it was 25 ish minutes of the match. Anyway, it just kept, we kept getting new versions of it that had more pieces of the match. And then finally, we're to a point where they just, they, for some reason, they're still dedicated to taking out like a 15 to 20 second clip. Don't know why. <laughs> but, but we have the match, you know, full in full, other than that 15 to 20 seconds, whatever happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like, there's just, it's the best crowd I think you'll ever hear. Yeah, um, it really defies the the stereotype of the quiet, respectful Japanese crowds. Yeah, it's 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 as lively or more lively than any American crowd you'll ever hear. Um, and just the near falls aren't excessive, but they right. push it. They push it though. They push it as far as they can. I think, but they then they stop. You know, before it becomes excessive. So, but that was one of the first one, two, no matches I can think of that I ever saw um, where that just happens so many times and keeps building and they keep getting to it in different ways and everything. And um, I love the Kobashi Kikuchi team so much. Like that's in some ways one of my favorite things Kobashi ever did because like, it's just these two guys, like Kikuchi was an amazing baby face. And Kobashi, we know was too, but he was the he was bigger. But they just they made the perfect team because Kobashi could be like the guy who cleans house, and I don't know. It's just a really interesting dynamic. So, um, yeah, that's that's an all time classic. I'm getting excited just thinking about it because it's been so long <laughs> since I watched it. And if, I think uh, Furness and Crawford are just one of the coolest tag teams ever. Yes, and they both bring different things to the table, which I thought was really, you know, because Furnace comes in and is just so explosive and short burst. Yeah. You know, with the like a big move or something, like best drop kick ever. Um, and then, and then, you know, Crawford was more of like the, he could do these elaborate finishing sequences and was just great at it. And uh, yeah. Uh, oh man, I, I, I might stay up and watch that match now. I'm not going to do that, but if there was a match I was going to do it before I could with that. I'm tempted. I'm, te- I'm tempted. <laughs> <laughs> so we started out talking about the 90s and its influence on modern day wrestling and 
delved into that a lot and just kind of talked about the awesomeness of the 90s. Do you think it's probably the best decade of wrestling that we we could see? Yes. Yeah. Especially where there's so much of it available, but uh, it really transformed the business. Yeah, and I think also part of the reason is because there are things about the 80s that are better than today and things that are worse. Mm-hmm. If you look at the 2000s and beyond, there are things about this era that are better than the 80s. And then there are things that are worse as well. Mm-hmm. To me, the 90s was the best of both worlds because all of the stuff that we is kind of commonplace now was new and was finding its way into the scene. But we weren't so removed from the way of doing things in the 80s that you didn't still have some of that influence too. So it was like a really good mix of old school and new school. And that tension was there. And that was really interesting because I think a lot of companies were mixing both things and um, yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't too far removed from its roots, but it was also, you saw new things being tried out and explored. And I think uh, what, I mean, you could honestly do a whole other hour on uh, whether Kate, the, you know, the, kind of decaying of kayfabe you know the influence that had but we really focus on in ring stuff that's my favorite thing in wrestling anyways right so yeah i mean and the kayfabe does impact the way that matches are worked and i think i think that's what i like about the 90s like you can get like a match like lightning kid versus jerry lynn which we started off talking about independence but that really is a great example because they're doing all the new school moves and they're working the match with that level of excitement, but there's also like the tradition of the strong baby face and the strong heel and um, you know, the hot crowd that's rooting for one over the other more so than they're cheering on the match itself. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah. So uh, I think we can wrap up here, bud. I really want to thank you for doing the show tonight and uh, being a great friend and a great wrestling fan and all you're doing, all the stuff that you're putting out there these days. Well, thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. So uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks.